With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Pressing my phone against the ear. I can barely hear my office manager. She kept saying, yeah, uh, payroll didn't go through. Payroll didn't go through. Uh, I was using all my cash to fund the business, but I was down to, I think, less than $1,000 um, in my bank account. And I really, it was hard for me to pay some of the employees. It's hard for me to pay the video owners. I started saying, hey, maybe I have a cash flow problem. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Bonner, and today on the show, we talk to Jonathan Scogwell. He's the founder of Jukin, which is an innovative media company that focuses on user-generated content. Well, you might be asking yourself, what the heck is user-generated content? Well, it's this. That's not me making that noise. It's the mask. Here, listen. That video is known as Chewbacca Mom, and the original video alone received over 140 million views. In fact, the video became so popular that this Chewbacca mask completely sold out around the world. Although the Chewbacca Mom, otherwise known as Candace Payne, technically owns the video, the rights to license that video belong to Jukin. By acquiring viral videos like this one, Jukin Media has amassed 200 million fans and received 3 billion views every month. We'll get into all this and Jonathan's current entrepreneurial ventures soon enough. But first, let's go back to his first venture. Growing up in Chicago, Jonathan always had quite an entrepreneurial streak. I grew up in Chicago, right outside of Chicago. By nature, I always had the entrepreneur itch in me ever since I was a kid. I always wanted to run a business, and for some reason, I always did. Even going back to my childhood at, at 11 years old, one of my first jobs was taking on a newspaper route where I would get paid, you know, 10, I think it was 10 cents a paper after school. It was only one day a week. Uh, after doing that for some time, I realized I can only cover a certain amount of houses in any given period. In order for me to expand my paper route, I started recruiting other kids in the neighborhood. And uh, I think I would pay them, you know, like three cents a paper. And I would keep the seven cents. And I realized I could expand my route. And I started the syndicate of other kids to do some of that job. One day, I think I got fired from that job because I don't think I was allowed to do that to recruit other kids. <laughs> what did that feel like to find this loophole and like this establishment kind of process and then be like, no, that's not how it's done? Yeah, I think uh, that's interesting. I think you mentioned the word loophole because I feel like I've, that's how any entrepreneur has to tackle any situation. They have to look for the, their loophole, the loophole or find a different angle to attack a situation. And I think I was always really good at not really going down the straight line of, of finding a different route, finding a different path. I mean, I think that's a quality in a lot of entrepreneurs at the end of the day, is trying to find a different path, knowing that you could do something different and you could do it better and bigger. And so I just, for whatever reason, I always thought I could do it different, bigger and better. Some people have that entrepreneurial spark. 
a drive to disrupt established organizational structures, an arrogant mantra that repeats in their head, I can do this better. I think a lot of kids naturally have this. They ask why, why are things this way? That question itself is defiant, but this defiance is usually squashed by reality. Those in positions of authority often answer, that's the way it's always been done. And while other 11-year-olds might have accepted this answer, conformed and listened to authority, Jonathan decided to trailblaze. He restructured the age-old paper route and built an entirely new organizational structure to maximize his profit. But Jonathan had dreams that were bigger than a paper route. He wanted to explore entertainment. That first came to fruition as a DJ. I think I was doing that at age 13. Me and another kid down the block, we would uh, do uh, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, uh, birthday parties. We got a little older, we started doing weddings. So we had our own mobile DJ company, did school dances, that sort of thing. That was probably my next gig. I've always worked for as long as I can remember. I always was a hard worker and was always doing something. Then think after that, I started a above-ground pool business. <laughs> we did that for about a summer. That's really hard work. And another, another friend, my partner at the time, we were able to uh, buy some equipment fairly cheaply, a van, and he worked at, he worked at uh, installing pools the summer before that. And I said, well, why don't we do it ourselves? And we started doing it ourselves. So. As long as I can remember, I've always had that entrepreneur spirit. But I also had this spirit of always love being in media and entertainment. I love movies. So I think growing up, I also always wanted to be a film director. I think maybe that's where that kind of stemmed from, is that opportunity to really entertain folks, uh, show people a really good time. And uh, maybe DJing was my outlet at the time. DJing presented Jonathan the opportunity to bask in the limelight and give him an idea of what it was like to entertain. Although he sometimes felt like a rock star, the reality of the DJ bat mitzvah game is that there's not much creative freedom. Seeking a more creative outlet, Jonathan discovered a love for filmmaking. Utilizing those recruitment skills that he had learned from his newspaper business, he again wrangled the neighborhood kids to realize his vision. As a kid, I was a, I was a filmmaker, and I would recruit my friends as actors. Um, I would recruit my brother to help me create these stories. I was probably about 10, 12 years old. A lot of them involved violence, and I was really inspired by, like, Indiana Jones. And... Ah, Dr. Jones, I'm a Weber. I spoke with your assistant. Uh, we've managed to secure three seats. But there might be a slight inconvenience, as you will be riding on a cargo full of live poultry. Is he Those are my favorite movies growing up. So a lot of them were action adventure. And I would take my parents' car. Uh, I had to make sure my mom was like the stunt driver and, and drive down the street. Cap guns and some fireworks and that sort of thing. And made these kind of, you know, these uh, these small uh, independent films at a really young age. So that was a lot of fun. Actually, one time I got, we got into a little bit of trouble. As we were trying to do some special effects as that we've uh, uh, burnt down a field. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we were trying, we were doing this war movie, and this whole field lit on fire by accident, and uh, the fire trucks came, the police came, and luckily everyone was, no one got hurt, but uh, it was pretty scary at the moment. I got a lot of trouble for my parents. What attracted you to so making those films? Was it, was it the audiences like it was in DJing, or was it 
the transporting you to a fantasy land or yeah i think so i think i was just really fascinated with the process and then you know able to see your work up on screen i think is just really cool i thought there was the really the coolest moment when i actually did go to film school and when you shoot with film when i went to film school to really see a projector it really shows how magical you know film filmmaking is and when you're given those resources what was it like to kind of just like expand because i'm like you know you had your mom as a stunt driver you're recruiting your friends you were building down fields but now you had like the legitimacy of like a institution behind you yeah i think what i realized though you know being a filmmaker i think i could really appreciate the art and like i said i appreciate the process and i really enjoy being part of it being a director involves there's a lot of skill set that i don't think i just naturally have or wasn't naturally good at and i I tried doing it what i really realized is i'm much better being behind the camera and thinking about the logistics thinking about the story that goes behind it and hiring those folks. That's what a producer really does is is problem solving, figuring out problems. And that's what also an entrepreneur does. A CEO of a company, they they figure out problems and they solve problems. And so kind of tying those two strengths that I had really lent itself. So I really wanted to focus on producing. And that's what I did early in my career. Jonathan had this vision of the person that he wanted to be. He had envisioned himself as a director ever since he was making short films with the neighborhood kids. Beyond that, he had the conviction to follow his dreams all the way to film school. Still, he never lost sight of his own strengths and his weaknesses. Jonathan was constantly reevaluating himself and asking, is this what I'm good at? That's an important question to ask. An entrepreneur often starts as a jack-of-all-trades because an idea usually starts with just one person. The eventual goal of an entrepreneur is to hire away responsibility in order to focus on his or her own strengths. Upon entering the film scene, Jonathan realized that he didn't have the propensity for creative direction. However, in the role of a producer, and particularly with the handling of logistics, Jonathan was something of a savant. So he pivoted to producing. It's important to note that he didn't give up on his dreams because he couldn't be a director. Instead, he reevaluated his skill set and the field of entertainment as a whole. Internalizing this new information, he got a foot in the door as a producer in Chicago. And upon getting some momentum in the Chicago film scene, Jonathan knew it was time to fulfill his childhood dream and move to the entertainment capital of the world, Hollywood. Lights! Camera! Action! I always wanted to come out to Hollywood. It's always my dream. This is the media entertainment capital of the world, the Mecca. And so after graduation, I spent the summer in Chicago, had a little fun. And said, you know what? It's time to move out to L.A. So that fall, first thing I did was moved out, drove across country with my dad. My dad dropped me off and I was exposed to this whole new world, which was, I thought was awesome, scary, exciting all at the same time. Did you have anything set up over there where you, or you were just like plopped in L.A. and you're like, all right, let's figure this out? I plopped in L.A. I didn't know anyone. I knew my roommate at the time, but he was also just really busy doing his own thing, but I didn't have a job. Any contacts I did 
have out here. I reached out to and didn't get much luck. And so it was really just trying to figure things out. I didn't even know where to go. And I would buy maps. And I had a map up in my li- in my uh, bedroom of all the streets. And on Sunday mornings, I would just drive around so I could get used to the streets. Cause I had no idea where to go or what things were or or anything like that. So and you didn't really have like a schedule. So you were just trying to see what opportunities would pop up. Yeah. So I tried getting a job just about everywhere. tried being a waiter um, and I didn't realize in, in in Hollywood to be a waiter you also need a headshot too. <laughs> that I've never heard of anything like that so I was just trying to make some money because I, I saved up a little bit but I was running out of funds really quickly um, and so um, I, I realized I had to do something so I applied being a delivery boy for uh, the studio lots that would deliver tapes and cuts and, and, and straps and it was a really low-paying job, and I remember I was able to get the job, but the guy who um, uh, was going to hire me said, kid, you really don't want this job. This is just driving around the lot with some, which I thought would be cool on a bicycle, dropping off, you know, strips and stuff, but he said, there's no, there's no way, you know, you want to be a runner. So uh, I didn't take that, but I ended up landing a job at a hotel where I was uh, working the front desk. Were you like, I have four-year degree in film, what am I doing here? Or was it, this is the next step in this journey? I, uh, a little bit of both. I thought, man, I have a degree and this is what I'm doing. I, I didn't think anything less of a work. I just knew I needed the money and I, do, I knew I had to do whatever it took. So having all that traction in Chicago and then going out and then struggling to find a job, was that demoralizing to you in any way? Yes, it was. But it was also, I was so excited just to be here and I felt very lucky to be here. And so um, I always kept my you know, head pretty high. Getting your foot in the door means paying your dues. Jonathan uprooted his life in Chicago where he was getting mid-tier production experience to take an entry-level hospitality position in L.A. That's rough on the ego, especially for someone that understands the depths of his competence. But Jonathan also understood that executing on a long-term vision requires short-term sacrifice and patience. So he bided his time and awaited for a break. Waiting presents another potential roadblock. That waiting period can corrupt vision. Often the comfort of the present can make you forget your dreams for the future. But Jonathan never got comfortable. He constantly searched for that opportunity to work in the L.A. entertainment industry. Fortunately, Jonathan found a friend in Los Angeles who would take him in. Sandy Spreckman, uh, who was, she's one of the nicest ladies I've ever met, who really, who really gave me a chance here. Her and her husband, they took me in like they were the nicest family in the world. Sandy was a former producer. She actually created uh, Judge Judy and she wasn't working at the time. So she asked me if I wanted to like help drive their daughter Brooke to school, help clean the garage, mow the lawn, manual labor. I did it with a smile. I was happy to do that work. And they really took me in, invited me over for, for holidays and so I was very lucky after doing some work and coming close with them, one of her friends called her up and said, Hey, I have a, a job available uh, as a researcher or production assistant for a new pilot. And she asked me, do you want to join this pilot for six weeks? John, would you be interested? And I said, 
maybe i wasn't really sure and i finally like found this job at this hotel where i was kind of steady i was like finally paying the bills a little bit because i was down to like eating rice every day like i really couldn't afford much and so i was like i finally had a job and i had some money and uh she said that you came out here to Hollywood to work in this industry and you're going to turn down a job. Don't ever turn down a job. Take the job. Don't worry about the hotel. And I said, wow, you're right. You're fucking right. What am I thinking? It's okay to, to live by the seat of your pants. And that's why I moved out to LA in the first place. So I was actually really excited. I quit that job right away. And I got a job being a researcher on this pilot for a clip show. I think it was a really life lesson that you should never feel too stable. Being too comfortable is not a good thing. And trust me, I didn't want to be comfortable uh, as a hotel clerk. Despite an initial moment of doubt, Jonathan was reminded of why he came out to L.A., he was willing to risk it all, his stability and comfort to chase this new opportunity. And this opportunity would shape the rest of Jonathan's career in Hollywood. So this was a pilot for a show called Country Fried Home Videos. Hey y'all, I'm Bill Engvall and you just turned to page one of Country Fried Home Videos. And it was for CMT like and it was an air, go to air pilot. So think of like a derivative version of America's Funniest Home Videos, but this is called Country Fried Home Videos on CMT. My job was to go to the P.O. Box once the show got into production because we would just get VHS submissions. I had a VHS player on my desk and I have to watch these videos that people would send in from America because at the, at the end of every episode, there was a call to action to send your VHS to this P.O. Box in Hollywood for a chance to be on the show. And a lot of were just not very good they weren't very funny but if it was any good like if something we could put on tv i had to read their handwriting i had to call that person up and say hey we like your video can you send in some more footage can you sign some more paperwork we need this information if we want to pay you and such and i thought it was such an archaic process and this is back in 2005 and I thought there had to be an easier way than this and so I still went to the P.O. Box every day and I looked through these tapes and even though it would take me such a long time to clear one piece of video I asked my producers there's got to be an easier way and how do we reverse that model came across this one platform where it looked like it was actually pretty good content and the description said hey my sister did this or my cousin did this so I thought that was the owner and uh, I told my producers we should actually go on this website start reaching out to people and they told me shut up kid go to the P.O. Box you don't know what you're talking about and me being the kind of person I am we talk about kind of angles before and loop I thought, why don't I just reach out to them directly and sign up for this website myself? And so that's what I did. I sent them a direct message. And I started bringing in a lot of content in that way by direct messaging people and telling, hey, send in your video here. Here's the agreement and sign it and send it right back over. So I was doing that for uh, the first season of the show. I did it for all the seasons, but the first season, I got in a lot of content. And I actually did a better job than some of my producers. So I think it was at the end of the season, I was doing inventory on all the content that, that, that came in through, through this previous season. Owners of the company realized how much content I brought in. And it was a lot more than some of the, the producers that they 
were paying a lot more money to. They had a lot more experience, you know, twice my age, you know, 20 more years more experience than me. And they said, kid, well, you did a lot better than them. We're going to make you a producer the second season. And why don't you teach other people how you, you know, find content, find videos. And so I was really good at finding videos. And I also realized if I wanted to get ahead at that early age as being a, a researcher and jumping to a producer, it was a simple formula for me is I just had to do better than the people ahead of me. It was just a numbers game. And so by the second season, I started producing the show. Just as Jonathan had found loopholes and efficiency hacks to improve his paper route, he found ways to become more efficient within this small Hollywood production company. But the people at the top were complacent. They didn't want to change how things were done or listen to some wide-eyed kid with big ideas. So they ignored Jonathan. But they couldn't ignore him for long. He was bringing in more and better content than the senior producers. It was only a matter of time until he'd be ahead of the curve. He just had to wait for the right opportunity. The writer's strike presented that opportunity. Labor showdown could knock some of your favorite TV shows off the air. Members of the Writers Guild of America voted... But what happened back then was scripted television went away and reality shows during the writer's strike went into production. And as you know, YouTube got more popular over the years. Proliferation of mobile devices. People can shoot content, share content, consume content. And so clip shows also became more popular. So every cable network wanted their own version of a clip show. And I became in a little demand in the small clip show community uh, that I could produce these clip shows. I could be a, a, a producer on these shows. And so I started jumping around from show to show producing these clip shows network to network i was doing something i love entertaining folks and i was really good at it and i was getting success at a fairly young age So I was working 12-hour shifts. I was in high demand. I would uh, end a job on a Friday, start a new job on a Monday. And so I was jumping around producing all these different type of clip shows. And I realized I really, if I wanted to get ahead, I really needed to own IP. And the heart of any media company is its library, its IP ownership. And so I was actually working for a, a show for Discovery. And they sent me over to this conference called MIP. So I'm 27 or so, something like that, and I get flown to the south of France. And my job there is to find clips for this clip show they were producing. We were doing an international version, and my job was to find clips for the show. And I go there, and I didn't know what to expect because what happens at MIP, it's the biggest television conference in the world. It's where formats and shows are sold to different territories. And so you have the biggest production companies and networks in the world there selling localized versions of their shows to different territories. And there's just floors and floors of booths and there's rosé and it's very fancy and it's a really cool place to be and there's thousands of people going everyone goes there twice a year um i went there not knowing what to expect i was there to find clips but what i realized it sparked an idea really realized it's all about ip ownership there and it's really hard to own ip especially a tv show you can't um own a show or a format without really creating yourself and putting up the money or if someone else is going to put up the money you have to show a lot of value why you should own the show and usually they don't give those formats away and i realize i can't own a show for all the reasons i mentioned but i can own those individual clips that make up a show and nobody knows those clips and the price and the market for those clips better than me 
And so I literally came back to the US and I had this idea that I can start curating all these videos. I could own the exclusive rights and I could relicense them and sub license them to other companies. Jonathan was experiencing problems with media ownership and recognized that this problem presented an opportunity. He could access an untapped market and license videos for distribution. There's a lesson here that finding problems can actually be a really good thing. That means an industry could be ripe for disruption, ripe for someone young, fresh, and full of ideas to take control. So Jonathan got to work on his new idea. I was excited about it. I was excited to start this company because nobody was curating this content kind of like a Getty Images or Charlestock is. And there's a lot of value in this user-generated content that I understand that value and I can start curating that content. I worked with people I worked with in the past and it was a really scrappy business. It was very bootstrappy. Uh, we worked from my apartment. I had uh, a desk in my room. Outside of my room was the living room and we had people and folding tables and chairs there. And then my roommate moved out. And so we had a full bedroom that we turned into a two-person office, but it was as scrappy as you can get. We were buying these videos, uh, licensing them in and then relicensing it back to a lot of these shows that I worked on. It was so very exciting because I felt like I had freedom. I became my own boss right away. I was making my own decisions. I was able to uh, make my own hours, but I was probably working just as much or as more. And so it was really fun and exciting times. It was really early days because we were just trying to figure stuff out and we were entering into a field that nobody was doing before. And so to be able to do that in LA, it was, it was a lot of fun. With a newfound sense of autonomy, Jonathan was ready to delve once more into the realm of entrepreneurship. And it was hard. He was barely scraping by. I was using all my cash to fund the business, but I was down to, I think, less than $1,000 um, in my bank account. And I really, it was hard for me to pay some of the employees. It's hard for me to pay the video owners. I started saying, hey, maybe I have a cash flow problem. Not having that constant cash flow. It's not having a financial team um, in-house. I was doing the finances. I was doing the, the AR, the account receivables. And some company was just kind of backed up. Um, in their in their processing checks, and I knew they owed me a lot of money. And I actually wasn't sure how much they owed me because what happens is they only pay you if the clip of the video airs. And so I said, "Hey guys, just you know, following up." And they said, "Oh yeah, yeah, sorry, we're backed up. We'll send it in the mail right away." And I think two or three days later, I get a check for like twenty seven thousand dollars. I remember opening up that check on the way going to the mailbox in my apartment building and walking back to my apartment and kind of just like stopping still. Check in hand, Jonathan immediately moved to expand. Keep in mind that at this point, Jonathan still had no clear path for his company. He didn't have a clear idea of what this expansion would even look like. But he had this small glimmer of success that gave him a taste of what could be. He had grit. Above all else, he had a deep conviction that his company was going to be successful. And it was this obstinance that would prove vital as he thrust his way into unprecedented areas of the media industry. 
But first, he needed to expand his operation past the walls of his apartment. So we, we got an office in Hollywood. And it was the Hollywood Production Center, and it was a great place. And we started expanding the team. We were working on a variety of projects. And so we were just bringing this content in. We were licensing this content out. So it really was just, we, we consider ourselves like a licensing agency. And it wasn't till there was this other company in the Hollywood Production Center that we noticed that was really taking over a lot of offices. And that company was called uh, Machinima. I didn't know what they did, but I knew they did something in YouTube and online video. And I realized that all of our content or all of our content came from online video and they're monetizing online video. Maybe there's something we could do together. And I think, again, I, I pitched them what we did and they were all about monetizing content digitally. They had a huge partnership with YouTube, investment from YouTube. They were all about getting a lot of scale by rolling up YouTube channels. They didn't own any content. Did you see that like Machinima is, wow, this is like where we could be. This, this has, this, this has scalability. I thought it was cool as in the fact is that they were onto something and I didn't know what it was. And it seemed like they were making a lot of money and it seemed like they were growing. That's how I kind of looked at them, but I didn't really understand their business, honestly, because what they did is they were the early MCNs, multi-channel network. And they didn't own content. They didn't believe in owning content or any sort of IP outside of YouTube. Their whole business was on YouTube. And they were rolling up channels, meaning they were uh, making deals with other content creators and just taking a percentage of their YouTube revenue. I didn't really get the business. And they told me I didn't have anything there. They said, we don't believe in IP ownership. Wait, so you came into this meeting and were like, hey, I have all these great ideas. Maybe there's a partnership. And they're like, you're wrong. Your idea sucks. Go home. Yeah, pretty much. He kind of blew me off. It wasn't that it was, <laughs> it wasn't that black and white, but it was. Uh, they kind of blew me off afterwards. And so I thought maybe they were right. And I think the problem is what happens with a lot of startups. They start to believe in their own hype. And they believe they can't fail. And when a lot of people are throwing money at them, like Google, you think you're doing everything right and you can't, you can't do anything wrong. I, I think what it does show you, you know, I, I could have been like, you know what, you're right, Machinima. I should change my business model and do something you're doing. But I thought it didn't make sense to me. And I stuck to my gut. I stuck to what made sense to me. And I didn't want to go down that path. I thought they were onto something because they were getting so big. Somebody thought they were doing right. They thought they were doing right. Um, I just knew I was also doing something right. I just thought my, I thought my way was smarter. Fighting past an initial flicker of self-doubt, Jonathan shrugged off the rebuke from Machinima. While he respected the people at Machinima and he believed in their company, he was adamant that his business model would succeed. Even if he didn't have a fully-fledged roadmap for his company, Jonathan's belief in himself and the business he was building remained unwavering. This unabashed confidence in his gut instincts was key to his eventual success. His intuitions would prove prophetic time and time again. We were not making much money on YouTube. And then we said, well, we're going to start monetizing our assets on YouTube by creating our own brands and channels. And so I saw this brand out there called Fail Army. Um, they were using a lot of our videos and I decided to buy Fail Army from some German kid. This seems like a, like a step in a new direction of curating content. What was the grander vision of putting this kind of stuff together? I, real, I thought there was an opportunity that we can monetize our content better 
we were monetizing the individual videos, but I thought if you package these videos and create compilations and montages, it's a better way to monetize that audience. Plus you can create a brand and people are very loyal to brands. And so we created this um, compilation in the summer and it rose to the number two video in the world. Was that validation that you were... We were onto something. Even though Jukin had brand recognition and secured some semblance of security for his company, it wasn't impervious to problems. There were times that Jonathan felt that he had failed as a CEO. One of those times was when Jonathan sat down at a bar. So I was at my first conference, first time leaving the office and actually going to a conference. I remember I was sitting at this loud bar, I was having a drink um, with some other industry folks, and I was pressing my phone against the ear, I could barely hear my office manager, and she kept saying, yeah, uh, payroll didn't go through, payroll didn't go through. And I thought, well, how is that possible? You know, we have all these checks coming in, and I just felt so bad, because your obligation as a CEO is to make sure your staff is taken care of, and... I looked at our business account and there was nothing in there and there wasn't enough to pay payroll. Immediately, I transferred funds from my personal account to my business account to make sure that I could pay everyone that evening. And so I made sure my office manager was writing hand checks. Why did you feel such a commitment to your people? I think you have to be. You have to have that commitment to people because their lives depend on you. And when we talk about stress, the biggest stress that I have is not being there for my employees, for my colleagues, that I can't be able to support them. This reveals how taxing leadership can be. Jonathan had to always be on. Even when he's at a bar, relaxing, maybe having a few drinks, he has to respond effectively to crises. Fumbling an issue as big as payroll can jeopardize relationships with employees and investors. Luckily, Jonathan was up to the task and knew that there wasn't time to relax. He saw potential in himself and in the business he was building. And now he was ready to take the next steps to promote its growth. Um, we had the licensing side of our business, and then we had the digital brand side of our business where we're monetizing these assets. And both sides were going really well. I think we're up to like 25-ish employees or so. And I realized I really, there was an opportunity for us to scale this business, to grow it even bigger. And so I wanted to find a number two to help me grow and scale that business. And so I went on like a nine-month search where I was looking for a, a number two, a COO, someone who scaled companies before. What does that search look like? It was asking everybody I could, you know, who do you recommend? I'm having a lot of coffee meetings. And uh, I met somebody by the name of Lee. What stood out about him? A had a legal background, which I really liked because we deal with IP. There's a lot of legal contracts. Um, there's a lot of agreements that are going in and out every single day. I liked the fact that he uh, was a CEO of another company that then had an exit. Uh, I liked the fact that he was advising other companies. And I thought, well, why doesn't he come in and take a look at our business and advise us? And so how did he change Jukin? 
Well, I asked him to come in one day a week, which quickly turned into two days a week. And by the end of the year, it turned into seven days a week. But uh, in that summer of 2013, I said, take a look at the business because for the first three years or so of Shyway, I was really just living month to month from paycheck to paycheck. All my employees, we didn't have much cash reserves in the bank. Then with all the success, the balance sheet started looking pretty good. And instead of taking that money out, I thought I would reinvest that money into the business. And so I asked Lee if he would join me to scale that company into this new company, this new co called Jukin, Jukin Media. Jonathan had stumbled upon something profitable. His business grew and evolved, gaining more and more highly experienced team members. But his thirst for growth and success remained unquenchable. Jonathan focused his attention on further expansion, first across the nation and then across the globe. We're a global business at the end of the day. Our content is language agnostic. Uh, cute kid is a cute kid anywhere, and ouch is an ouch anywhere. And so people will laugh, it will cry, it doesn't matter what the language is because our content is so universal. We have an office in New Delhi as well. Um, India is a huge market for us. So at the end of the day, we run a global business. Jonathan has an uncanny ability to find markets in uncharted territories. Time and again, he has followed his gut instincts, seemingly having a sixth sense for where money will go next. Using these Oracle-esque abilities, he has managed to build his business from a scrappy three-person operation, working out of a two-bedroom apartment, to a global operation with over a hundred employees. However, throughout this growth, there has been one aspect that Jonathan has doggedly maintained, company culture. It's super important that you continue to keep the culture going and you never lose track of that. So I think the culture that we promote here is something that we started from the very beginning. When we had three employees, when we had 20 employees, it hasn't changed. I think it starts from the top. I'm very involved in the culture. And as you look around, you may see some open floor space and some ping pong tables and and pool tables, which is on the other side, Uh, some beer. Uh, snacks and energy drinks that's not culture that's just a, a little perk that you have and I think some people confuse that with culture for us it's about communicating our core values and principles and having people follow our core values we're a hard-working company we respect each other we believe in hiring and promoting within uh, we believe there's a career path for everyone we believe that everybody has a voice it doesn't matter what level you are if you're an assistant to your VP we want to hear your opinions. You deserve a seat at the table. That's what culture is. And so I think it's always been my job and any job as a CEO to maintain that culture. It doesn't matter what size you are. And that's what we did. We have Halloween events when we had six people where everyone dressed up in the office. And now we have it when we have 200 people. Um, It doesn't change. Um, I think it's important that the CEO and leadership continues traditions and it starts from the top. Hard work has always been at the core of Jonathan's life. And so it's only natural that he would strive for it to be a key tenant of his company's culture. His unparalleled drive and determination were paramount to the success of Juca Media. It's only natural that this would be baked into his company's creed. His success can also be attributed to his autonomy. Given autonomy, Jonathan can express his own ideas and forge his own path. Given this, it's only natural that he ascribes to a horizontal mode of communication within his company. 
He gains insights and ideas from employees at all levels. By maintaining ties with those at all levels of employment, Jonathan has sustained a consistent company culture throughout the years. He has built a resilient, dynamic, albeit uncertain future for Jukin. So what I'm, I'm really excited about is our OTT and connected TV business. And so we've taken our, these really great brands that we've created uh, on these social platforms and we've launched them on AVOD. And we have a team that's selling that inventory. We're selling that programmatically. We are creating programming that's 24-7. Essentially, we've created a TV network from our content, from our library. Um, and so it's very exciting to be part of that. Um, and be on these platforms that didn't exist five years ago. And where do you see the future? I think user-generated content is not going to go away. People are still going to continue creating content. They're going to continue sharing that content. They're going to continue consuming that content. I don't know what platform or the eyeballs are going to be, but I do know that people are still going to watch UGC. While Jonathan may not be entirely sure of what the future holds for Duke and Media, he has a clear direction. And that clarity put him in a position to give us some advice. So I asked what advice he has for you, the people listening to this podcast. The advice that I give to other entrepreneurs is that you have to really want this. And you really have to not be able to go to sleep at night because there's that itch in the back of your head, in the back of your brain that's saying that you could do it better. You're solving this problem. You could be a disruptor and you can't sleep at night. And you're willing to risk it all. You're willing to risk your friends, family, your health to create this product, to create this business because you know you could do it better than anyone because you can't stop thinking about it. And you have to love what you do. You have to be passionate about what you do. And you have to put everything else to the side and focus on this. Because it's time-consuming. It is painful. It is stressful. But there's so much upside to it. And there's so much satisfaction of doing something that you know you could do better than anyone else. And so I would say, do you really want to go down this path? Do you really want to go down this journey? And if you do, enjoy the journey because it's ups, fills with ups and downs. And I love it. I hate it, but I love it at the end of the day. And then just kind of a quick question. I know you guys have a book club. Are there any books that you would recommend? Um, my favorite book that is annotated over there is how to win friends and influence people. So I have a handful of books that I love. So I'm always happy to share what I'm reading at any given moment. In my interaction with Jonathan and upon looking over this audio, I realized Jonathan has grit. Growing up in Chicago will do that to you. But what's unique is how Jonathan applies this grit to his leadership. He's transparent in his thought processes. He'll let you know when your work is good. He'll also let you know when you've crossed the line. He's unpolished, gruff, and authentic. I don't think it's a coincidence that he mirrors the content that he spent decades promoting. Jukin collects authentic user-generated videos. But the company has also been aggregating Jonathan's authentic leadership style that has blossomed into a culture of authenticity. This has done wonders for growth, development, and purpose. Authenticity pays off in the world of content, but it also has merit in leadership. Jukin is proof of that, and so is Jonathan.